Good morning. Thanks, Aaron, for reading the scriptures. Happy uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Go a divided opinion among the room. Yeah, go hot wings. That's what I'm saying. After the Cardinals lost, I really don't care. Um, I think it'd be cool to see Manny win, but it doesn't matter. Uh, Welcome to Redemption Church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad you're here. If this is your first time, I'd love to meet you. Frank, our lead pastor, he'd love to meet you. Cody, our worship pastor, Josh, uh, all, all of us would like to meet you. So, so come find one of us after the service and say hello. We're glad you're here. Redemption Church exists as one church with 10 different congregations in and throughout Arizona. Uh, there, are, there, there are eight in Phoenix, and there's one in Flagstaff, one in Tucson. We are the Arcadia congregation, and we're glad you're here. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and one, th- one of the things that we say often is that we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So welcome if this is your first time. If this is your hundredth time, also welcome. We're, we're glad you're here as well. We're continuing our study in the book of Judges today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges 10. We're going to pick up in that section that Aaron just read for us. Um, before we get going in that, I want to kind of take a look at this question. This question of, do you ever think that you can manipulate God? or coerce God to give you more favor, to give you more good things. In what ways do, do we do this? Do we try and manipulate God to, to work on our behalf, to work for our favor? And you might think, oh, I, I, don't, I don't do that, right? And that's a fair kind of assumption to say, oh, I don't do that. But it's very, very possible, and I, I would even say probable, that we do do that, and maybe we're not aware of it. We, as human beings, we're wired to try and earn good things. It's bred into our natures from a, really a very early age. Take, take Santa Claus, for example, right? Santa Claus, what, how does the system of Santa Claus work? If you're a good little boy or, or a good little girl, then you get good gifts, right? I remember getting a, a bike as a kid and thinking, I must have been a really good little kid this year, which was not true. I wasn't a good kid in a year. Um, and if you were a bad little boy or a bad little girl, you got coal. Or if you're in your 30s, you get socks, right? I, um, th- this year, my, I'm fairly convinced that my mom's a recovering hippie. Uh, she gave me essential oils this year, which was, I must have been very bad. Some of you are like, yeah! All of you that are clapping for that, you practice black magic. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, in, in all seriousness, we, this Santa situation, by the way, Santa spelled another way is Satan, so there's that. You're welcome. Um, s- this whole Santa system is built on what you do or on what you don't do. We are wired to try and earn good things, and oftentimes this translates over into our view of God, doesn't it? We think that if we can kind of trick or manipulate or, or, or sacrifice enough to God that he'll love us more. He'll like us more if we do enough good things, but God doesn't operate this way. In fact, this is my my central point today, or the big idea, is that God's favor cannot be earned. God's favor cannot be earned. He doesn't operate that way. He didn't operate that way when I was five years old. He doesn't operate that way now, and he didn't operate that way in the book of Judges. And so, Before we dive into the text, the book of Judges, I want to kind of speed us up on the context. Um, If you've been with us these last few weeks, you've seen that Judges has been a pretty challenging book. It's full of murder, strife, 
uh, envy, all sorts of wicked acts, everything you can imagine. Idolatry is in here. And you start to think, this is a strange book. Why is this in our Bibles? It's full of leaders who fall away from God. It's full of really hard to pronounce names. And so last week we saw a leader named Gideon. And Gideon went before the Lord and he eventually led people, led, led the Israelite army in battle against the Midianites and he was victorious. And he received from that national acclaim and then he basked in that national acclaim. And in doing that, he sort of forgot the Lord. He sort of glorified himself more than, than the Lord. And that led to a trajectory of, of uh, cyclical sin. When he died, the nation of Israel just tanked, absolutely tanked. They fell back into more cycles of sin and brokenness and wickedness. And so that's where we pick up today is in Judges 10, verse 6. So look at, look at 10, verse 6. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. It's funny, you know, I read a verse like this, and I think to myself, man, why can't the Israelites just get it together? Why don't they see their own stupidity? Why can't they just break these cycles of sin? And it's an easy question to ask, but it's funny because then I read the last line of that verse. It says, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. How many times do I forsake the Lord and not serve him? How many times do we forsake the Lord and not serve him? This is how scripture functions oftentimes, like a mirror. You read it and you see yourself in it. The reality is, is that our sinfulness and our brokenness is not much different than Israel's. They served the gods of their culture, and so do we at times. Look down now at verses 7 through 9. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So what happens here is the Lord gives the, pe the people of Israel, he gives them over to that which they most wanted. They had served and loved the gods of foreign and the surrounding cultures. They turned their back on the one true God and they had devoted themselves to the gods of the Philistines and to the gods of the Ammonites. And so what does God do? He says, okay, ha have it your way. The false gods that they had loved and longed for became the means through which God judged them and punished Israel. We see this in verse eight, that they were crushed and oppressed. And this brought them great distress. And so what do they do as a response? They, they cry out to the Lord. And in crying out, they eventually appoint a leader, and this leader will fight against the Ammonites. That appointed leader will be a man that we see next. His name is Jephthah. Read verse 11, uh, chapter 11, excuse me, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So when Jephthah was a boy, he was not very well liked. Um, he was born of a prostitute, and so he was not respected. And as he grew older, his brothers rejected him and, and cast him out. 
And he became an outcast living in the hills because of his perceived illegitimate birth. He had been exiled. His, his, his mom, they said, was a prostitute, and so um, he lived out in the hills. And he flourished out here in the hills as sort of a bandit outside of the military structures of Israel. Yet after a certain tribe of Israel, the, the Gileadites, after they were humiliated by a foreign army, they, they go to this guy Jephthah and they ask for his help. They had heard that he, he could kind of run the show uh, militaristically. And so they go to him and they say, can you help us? And he says, no, he, he, he's not having it at first. He's not buying it. And so with no options, they, they sort of drum up this shallow appeal to God. And they promise to make Jephthah their head. And so finally, Jephthah agrees. He says, yes, I'll, I'll do that. And they all, with Jephthah, they all go to this sanctuary down by Mitzpah. And they ratify their contract there before the Lord. And presumably before the entirety of Israel's army. It's there that Jephthah takes this oath of office and he's officially made the commander-in-chief. We read this narrative and we kind of think, oh, okay, that's interesting, nothing really significant there. But if you, if you read it carefully, you see that this whole episode represents a, a glib and calculated approach to manipulate God. The, the Israelite judges were appointed by God, and, and, and by both God and the leaders. But where, where was God in this process? He was absent. They sort of left him out in the back seat they did appeal to God as a silent witness. They did, um, they did try to bring God in, but this contract they had made with Jephthah, it was purely a human contract between a desperate people and a very, very ambitious leader. Jephthah didn't, he didn't care about God. He didn't care about God as his witness. He cared about the, Israel, the Israelite military being there, and he cared about receiving the, that approval, approval from men. And so this begs the question, what what was Jephthah's relationship with God like? Is this guy a leader? Does he recognize the hand of God upon him? Does he really know God truly? Does he seek to, to, to follow God as he leads others? Or is he seeking ways that he can use God? Does Jephthah here really truly know God or is, is he a Canaanite at heart? The rest of the narrative will help us unfold this answer. R regardless of that answer, Jephthah was now the leader. And so his first move was to send a note to the Ammonites. And so he sends a note to the Ammonites arguing for Israel's right to have this, this plot of land. And the Ammonites write back, they're like, no, nah, man, it's not, it's not happening. And so that causes Jephthah to gear up for battle. And curiously, in gearing up for battle, the text tells us this, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Look at chapter 11, verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. What's going on here? Why does it say that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah? The author's trying to make a point clearly to us that outside of anything Jephthah could do or not do, God's Spirit was upon him and God's work would be complete because of who God is, not because of who Jephthah was. So we read on, it says, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So this passing on, in, in gearing up for battle, he's going around and he's assembling essentially his army. He's passing through all these different, that's what this language is, passing through. He's, he's gathering his warriors for battle. And now that he's rallied the troops, he is ready. And 
all of this leads to this really, really strange thing in verse 30. Look what he does, verse 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, that shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Here, Jephthah makes a vow, and it's a very strange, very peculiar vow. It functions like this. If you give me X, I'll give you Y. Right? This is a very childish way of, of bargaining. It lacks reverence for God. It's styled more like a negotiation than actual heart devotion. God's favor, he fails to realize, cannot be earned. God's favor cannot be earned. And so he formulates this um, bargaining as, a, as an attempt to manipulate God for his own profit. I remember trying to bargain sort of like this as a kid. I used to um, I used to say, if you give me this, then I'll give you this. So, example, my little sister, I, I would try and trade her pennies for dimes because I told her that, um, <laughs> that pennies were more valuable than dimes because they were bigger and they were gold, right, gold. They looked gold to, you know, four-year-olds. And so I would manipulate her, say, if you give me this, I'll give you this kind of trading was going on. But God doesn't trade anything here in this text. God doesn't need to trade anything. God has already given Jephthah the guarantee of victory before Jephthah even made his bargain. And so instead of bargaining, God is silent with Jephthah. And this silence is staggering. It's meant to communicate something. God will play no part in the impulsive demands of Jephthah, these demands to have victory over the Ammonites. God won't play that game because God has already secured that victory based on God's prerogative, not on Jephthah's pretension. So now look at the specifics of Jephthah's vow. He says, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, that shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Notice the if-then nature of this vow. If you do this, God, then I will do that. What is it that Jephthah promises to do? He says this. He says that he will offer as a sacrifice whatever first exits his door. Now this is strange. He's just kind of gambling, it seems like. Whatever first comes out of my house, that's why. I wonder if he was half expecting his mother-in-law or like the house cat. I'm hoping he was at, hoping that the house cat would come out. He just says, whatever comes out of the house, that'll be an offering to the Lord. Burnt offerings in the Old Testament were usually an animal of some sort. And hopefully, in this case, as we read it, we kind of hope, yeah, we, we want this to be an animal. At any rate, Jephthah's statement here is clearly manipulative. It was, it was like he was trying to add extra power as though it was salt. He could sprinkle it on. He was trying to add extra power to his prayer by saying, oh God, look how pious and holy I am. I'm willing to gamble with the lives of others in order to secure your favor. Oh, I love you so much. Aren't I so great? What a guy, huh? What a guy. He fails, again, to acknowledge God's favor. It cannot be earned. And so now he goes off to battle. Look at verses 32 and, and 33. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So this description here, it tells us of a, what seems like a decisive victory. 
This was not to Jephthah's credit, but to God's credit. God was determined to deliver his people. And he would do this through Jephthah to lead the victory. The text doesn't tell us how long the battle went on, but I, I, I read this and I can't help but think this must have, it sounds like a relatively short battle. And it sort of reminds me of the, the Gulf War. In January of 91, the U.S. led a coalition of forces to free Kuwait from Saddam Hussein's oppression. And if you remember that, the, if you remember Operation Desert Storm, it was remarkably short as, in terms of how wars go. It was about a month long. Uh, the air war started first, lasted for a couple of weeks, and then the ground war came. And the ground war portion was 100 hours. And after the 100 hours, Kuwait was, was liberated, and President uh, Bush Sr. at the time had de declared a ceasefire. And so um, as we think about Kuwait being liberated, we can also see that this plot of land in Israel here in the text was also liberated. It had formerly belonged to, was a possession of the Ammonites. But now Jephthah and his army has gone in, and it is a possession of the Israelites. And so with the battle now over, Jephthah returns home. Look at verses 34 and 35. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. This is a scene that is not like the reconciliation scenes that we see on TV of a soldier coming home after he's been deployed to meet his family. This is a cold, cold episode, and it's reflective of Jephthah's idiocy. He swore an oath to God, right? He said, God, if you give me victory, then I will give you through sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my door. And the first thing that comes out of his door is his daughter. His only daughter. And she's dancing and she's singing. She's, she's happy to see dad, right? If you're a dad here, you can picture this kind of like when you come home, even just from work, you've been gone for eight or 10 hours, Little girl comes up, daddy, daddy. It's, it's this kind of situation. I think she's older than a toddler, but she's exuberant to see him, full of sweetness and full of joy. And unfortunately, whatever sweetness and joy that she had was quickly extinguished by her dad's rotten selfishness. Notice his response. He says this, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Look at the blame shifting here. You have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. It's lovely, isn't it, when parents blame their kids for their behaviors? Yikes. This blaming, it's not all that he does. He, he keeps belittling her through other means. He shifts now to self-preservation. I have opened my mouth to the Lord and cannot take back my vow. I, 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 me, me, me. This guy's a tool. I didn't anticipate laughter that, but okay. <laughs> he blames his daughter, and then he excuses himself. He cares nothing about the preciousness of his daughter's life. He cares only about the perceived deal that he made with God. And in light of that deal, he insists, oh, I can't take it back, I can't take it back. He fails again to see that God's favor cannot be earned. And so this is his daughter's reply in verse 36 and 37. 
And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up, may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. Jephthah's daughter, she must have had the, the vow that he made, she must have had the vow explained to her at some level because now she realizes here how committed her dad was to this vow. And so she begins her reply with this very endearing personal term. She doesn't, she doesn't act like her dad and start blame shifting back. She just says, my father, right? My father, she's beside herself and she's likely trembling in fear. But she courageously and dutifully tells her father to to do that which he had vowed. Apparently, she didn't know that there was an exception to this, that there was a loophole to all of this. You see, when an Israelite made a vow, that vow had to be completed unless it involved a human subject. And and if it did involve a human subject, there, there was an allowance made in the Israelite law for things like this to be canceled, to be broken. But she doesn't mention that. Instead, she opts for some time alone with her girls in order to mourn her virginity. Now, what is this, to mourn her, to weep over her virginity? It's very strange, isn't it? I remember reading this and going, man, this is a, this is a doozy text. I don't, how am I going to preach this? What this means is that she went up with her, with her friends to, um, not just to be sad that she was going to die a virgin, but to be sad that she was never going to bear a family. In Israelite culture, in similar ways to our culture, to have a family was a great joy and privilege for women. Raising kids and continuing on the family line was uh, something that was considered honorable in Israelite culture. And now, not only will she die without carrying on that family line, but she will die and effectively close off Jephthah's family line. His seed would essentially die with her. Why? Because he had no other children. The general perspective of the Old Testament is this, that, that, ch- that uh, families live on through their kids. Accordingly, to die without progeny was considered a terrible fate. And so with this vow, there's immense irony. Jephthah, with this vow, he had tried to establish um, permanency. To, he tried to secure his, his present. But in doing so, in making this vow, he ends up sacrificing his future. And so now look down at the conclusion of this at verse 38 through 40. And so he said to her, go. Then he sent her away, and for two months she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite for four days in the year. In the end, this nameless girl wept with her friends, and her friends wept for her, but Jephthah wept only for himself. This section here closes with the fulfilling of his vow. By, he, he literally sacrifices his daughter, thinking that that will somehow please God. She dies at the hands of her father because he cannot in fact, I would say will not grasp the concept that God's favor can't be earned. God's favor cannot be earned. As I read a text like this, I start to ask myself the question, why is this in the Bible? 
Like, what? this guy, so do, do you wrestle with that? Why is this here? It seems like this guy is such an awful individual. Why is he allowed a spot in God's word? The answer is twofold. I, I think first, um, it, it's a fair question, but note this. Much of scripture, especially in the case of the Old Testament, much of scripture is descriptive rather than prescriptive. And as we read through passages like this, we have to keep that distinction in mind. Sometimes people will go to the Bible and say, look how awful it is. It's got this terrible story and you call this God's word. How could you want to live like Jephthah? No, that's missing the point, right? This story's describing to us what happened. It's not prescribing to us how things ought to be. And that's a really, really important distinction. This story is primarily descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And then the second thing is, be thankful that these stories are about others and not you. Be thankful that these stories are about others and not you. Nevertheless, why did things go down like this? Why did Jephthah make such a promise in the first place? After, he, after all, did, did he not know the Israelite law that, that God clearly stated in Deuteronomy that human sacrifice was wicked? Did he not know better or did he just not care? Like, why did he make this tragic vow? Observe this. Jephthah had been surrounded by uh, pagan cultures all of his life. He was cast out of Israel. And he was surrounded by and partially, I think, in love with these pagan cultures of violence. And this, these cultures naturally flowed from the pagan societies in which he lived. This is a vivid and horrible example about how we as believers can profess faith in God and yet allow a whole host of other things to live alongside of us. We can profess tr trust in Christ, but we can allow the world to kind of squeeze us into its mold. Because the culture around Jephthah was violent, he let the worldly way of life infiltrate his heart and it lived alongside his other true beliefs that he did have. Today, we're similar, aren't we? We, if we're not careful, can let worldly beliefs come in and live alongside true, godly Christian beliefs. Notice this also. Jephthah, he was not only infected by pagan morality, but he was infected, and perhaps more dangerously, by pagan theology. The other nations, they thought that they could earn God's favor by doing good works or by sacrificing to them. Human sacrifice was the norm then. You could essentially buy off a pagan god. A pagan worshiper would do this. They would sacrifice a human and say, in this, say, let me show you how, how holy I am. Let me show you how devoted I am to you. This reason was why Jephthah kept his vow. He wanted to show God, as if God was like the other gods of the nations, how devoted he was to him. He didn't understand that God, God cannot be impressed Jephthah assumed, though, that God operated like the foreign gods, like the pagan gods. And so even after he realized that his rash vow was foolish, he was still trapped by that foolish vow. He didn't trust God. He refused to break his vow. Now, it's, it's easy to think, oh, how, how, why didn't he just break it? Why didn't he just get on with it? The reality is, Jephthah did not trust God. He was trapped by his mistrust for God. He seems to believe that God will strike him down if he doesn't carry on with this sacrifice. But the God of the Bible doesn't operate that way, amen? He didn't operate that way then in the book of Judges either. The God of the Bible only wants one kind of sacrifice. 
right? Only one kind of, not human sacrifice, but the self-sacrifice of our hearts. Offering our whole hearts to God to be transformed by God. We, we, can't, we can't try and manipulate God or secure his favor. We can't do it. We, we do this as a response. We offer our whole hearts to God. We do this as a response to the grace and the love that he's already given us, to the favor that he already has for us because we know that God's favor cannot be earned. What does this mean? This means that we have to throw out all these kind of tendencies. We have these tendencies to think, well, if I just go to church more, God will love me more. If I'm more involved, I'll have more favor from God. If I, if I offset my good deeds with my bad deeds, kind of like some of you are gonna offset your hot wings with your vegetables later today, you think you'll be healthier. That's not true. Hot wings are always better for you than vegetables. <laughs> you, can't, you can't offset your good deeds with your bad deeds. You think, oh, if I spend time more, more, more time serving, then God will give me an easier life. Or if I, if I pray more, if I give more money, God will bless me more because the televangelist said so, right? No, wrong. If I pray more, if I love God more, he'll give me what I want. You ever done that? Have you ever tried to kind of manipulate God that way and earn his favor? I know that I have. Um, and I've done it with Bible verses, which is even worse. So Psalm 37, 4, it says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You ever taken this verse and tried to use it as a tool to get what you want in life? If I delight myself more in God, then he'll give me that thing that I want most, fill in the blank, relationship, job, d degree, um, love and acceptance and a community, whatever, right? If I just delight myself in God more, he'll give me that which I most want? No, that's not what this verse says. But I, I can say that I've used this verse at times in my life to believe that lie. No, this verse is not linear, in, in, meaning it's not meant to go from point A to point B to give you the, the desire of your heart, which is point B. This verse is cyclical. This verse doesn't mean that if you love God more, he's gonna give you what he wants. It means if you love God more, what becomes the desire of your heart? More of God. The desire of your heart increases as love for God, not just for the thing that you want the most. Friends, we, we are trapped sometimes thinking that if we just do enough good things, that God will accept us. I teach, uh, I teach a couple classes at Grand Canyon University, one of which is a class for freshmen, and it's called Christian Worldview. And inevitably, they, in their assignments, every semester I'll have some students, not all of them, but some students say things like, um, I, I believe that God loves me because I'm a good person. All the time, all the time. Friends, we will go nowhere if we believe this. This is superstition. You cannot trick God into loving you more or to giving you more. And this is where Jephthah got it wrong. He wasn't responding to a God of grace who had already pronounced his favor and his full deliverance. Instead, he was trying to squeak out more favor by, and, and make God give him more grace. Jephthah was appointed as a deliverer, and he did, he did that. He delivered Israel in battle, but then he failed to protect and love and serve his family and to trust God. Now, it would be easy for us to think, Man, oh, Jephthah, what a low life. It'd be easy to look at this example in scripture and just think, what an idiot, right? Somebody give him socks for Christmas. This guy blew it. 
Or, or it would be really easy to, to, for me to stand up here and say, don't be like Jephthah. Don't be like Jephthah. Straighten up your lives. Straighten up your lives through doing these steps, right? By being nice. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Use essential oils. Whatever. Yada, yada, yada. That's not the point. That's not the point of this text is for you to straighten up your life and to not be like Jephthah. This text is set in the general context of human misery of Israel. Israel was living completely YOLO in the book of Judges. They cared nothing about God. And they, for, for the most part, they did whatever they want. They didn't trust God. They didn't revere God's word. They didn't have any, con- any moral compass or concepts that helped them submit to God. No, instead, they became their own gods. And the Israelites are here all throughout Judges, at best, only halfway partnered with the true God. And so God sends deliverers over and over to rescue them. But even the deliverers fail, don't they? Even Jephthah, he was an instrument for God's deliverance, but even he still screwed up. His failure here, it's not recorded for us to look down on, oh, Jephthah, what what an idiot. We must remember that this narrative of Jephthah is fit into a larger narrative. And that larger narrative of the Bible has a deliverer who doesn't fail, amen? A, a deliverer who doesn't assert his right to lead. A deliverer who serves instead. A deliverer who doesn't manipulate situations. A deliverer who doesn't try and earn God's favor because he himself is God. A deliverer who doesn't sacrifice others but sacrifices himself for others. A deliverer whose substitute for sin, his death and resurrection, secures us favor with God. A deliverer who loves us. A deliverer whose favor cannot be earned. Friends, there is power in this deliverer's name. His name is Jesus. This deliverer is the one to whom we look for deliverance. His death and resurrection secures that. Our salvation is rooted in that. And so in response to that salvation, We have freedom. In response to Jesus' deliverance of us, we have freedom to go and find our favor in him because he's already given it to us. No need to earn it. No need to store it up. No need to hold on tightly to it. God's favor in Christ is already for you. It's already yours if you are united to him. So, yes, do good things. Love your neighbor. Serve the underserved. Come to church, practice holiness, resist sin, read the scriptures, share your faith. But remember that those things cannot save you. Indeed, they will not save you. Those things instead are the right and normal response to acknowledging that you have already been saved by our deliverer, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that you sent a deliverer that we can know that your favor cannot be earned because you, God, are a God of grace. And we could never do enough to earn your grace. We thank you that that good news permeates our hearts and gives us a greater longing for you. God, as we reflect on that, we pray that we would walk in the good works that you've already set for us to do. That we wouldn't try and please you more by doing good things uh, just for our own sake or for our own glory. God, help us not to be rash with our words. Help us to be slow to speak, quick to listen. Jesus, thank you that you have come and died for our sins in our place. Because of this great truth, 
We want to be transformed by you. We want to live for you. We want to resist sin and not keep falling into the cycles like the Israelites. God, give us the courage by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.